Nehemiah chapter number 9. Well, Bible study tonight. I hope you'll listen to what the Lord has for all of us here. And maybe a little more volume on this, if you could there, back there just a little bit. Nehemiah chapter 9. Notice verse 9, verse 1 rather, says, Now in the 20 and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths, and earth was upon them. They, you know, they would throw the dirt as a sign of uh, humility. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And thank you for this privilege we have of just looking at it, reading it, hearing it, and being changed by it. And I pray that we will listen and hear. And we'll be doers of the word as well. Bless this time of study in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 3 of this text, you'll notice the Bible says, as a part of this wonderful revival that the people of God enjoyed, the congregation stood and it says they worshiped the Lord for one quarter, one fourth of the day. In addition, it says that they read the word of God. They stood, the people stood, and they read the word of God to them for another quarter of the day. For the Jews, as I'm sure many of you here know, both the day and the night were divided into four parts. The, uh, each part had three hours, so you had you know, 12 here and 12 here, 24 hours. Mark 13.35 speaks about the four hours of the night session, if you will, when Jesus said, Ye know not when the master of the hour cometh, at even, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. The Lord Jesus thus using the common four parts of the evening up until the morning. And then, of course, oftentimes you'll read about the third watch of the night, the second watch, and so on. For Nehemiah, he records that for one quarter of the daytime hours, again, that's three hours, the people worshipped. That's what happens in chapter 9, and it is glorious what God does for his people and what they do in their humility. The other quarter, Nehemiah says, during the daytime, was taken up uh, with the reading of God's word. And not just reading, as you'll see in a moment, this is vital, understanding. That part of the revival is recorded in chapter 8. Look at it, turn back a page if you would, and notice verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive on the book of the law. Now let me just say this. Anybody who's ever had any interest in subjects along the line of revival, Bible interpretation, worship, exposition, preaching, Bible study, learning from the Word of God, and so it goes, ought 
to be very familiar with this passage in Nehemiah 8 and 9. Because not only is this the first recorded revival in all of the Bible, it's also the first recorded example of, shall we say, interpretation and exposition of the Word of God. You understand, and you know this, the Jews have finally gathered themselves together after their long you know, exile and their, their captivity. They've come, they want to hear Ezra speak. And for the most part, they had been away at Babylon so that they had never heard the Bible. Uh, in this way ever before. All their lives they were influenced by their culture, the Babylonian religion, and then what Jewish text the parents could pass on. But here they are now, they're sort of like almost new converts, or you might say they're backslidden believers, who are about to take part in one of the greatest revivals in all of history. And it's a classic, classic reminder, illustration from the Word of God, of the power of Scripture. Whenever that scripture is heard, is spoken, is interpreted and applied correctly. You understand that every revival in history, study them as many of us in this room have done. And I don't care if it's the Reformation, if you look at what happened when some people, some people kind of woke up or the Welsh revival, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, any and every great true revival, including the revival that occurs in individual hearts that history doesn't write about, your revival that happens in here, all of them, any true spiritual move of God begins with the Word of God. The Word of God has always, always been the power behind the great mission movements, church-building movements, national revivals. It's why Amos said to backslid in Israel, there's a famine in this land, and it's not a famine of bread and water. It is a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Anything good spiritually, anything eternal, anything that's truly life-changing and supernatural always begins with God and not with man. And so it is in Nehemiah and Ezra where this entire miraculous event begins with the Scriptures. And of course, we say begins with the Bible because the Bible is not some lucky charm. It's not enough to carry one under your arm. Or to have one on the dash of your car. It's not enough to have one on the coffee table or in a purse. That alone is not the secret. There's not an answer at all for any kind of spiritual blessing or revival. The kind is certainly that, that Ezra led in this chapter. There's something you have to do with the Bible. It's one reason why people come to church for 30 years and their lives are changed completely. And there's amazing growth and spiritual maturity. Some per, somebody sits right next to them or behind them for the same 30 years and there's no change. What do you have to do? The first thing you'll notice is what we call the, we'll, we'll call the hands. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. I'll show you what I mean. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street. Now, what it means when it says they gathered themselves together as one man is very simple. It means, okay, I said hands, hands united, if you will. It means God's people were there in agreement and harmony. Let me remind you of another great revival. It's called Pentecost. Pentecost, where 3,000 were saved, thousands of people were saved and baptized. Well, what does Acts 2.1 say? The very first thing about that meeting, the same thing it says in this verse 1. It says, and the people were in one accord in one place. All you have to do is think about it for a moment. What is the weapon that we all know our, the Holy Spirit of God uses? It's the Word. It's called the sword of 
the Spirit. That's capital S. The Bible is the sword of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's weapon. And he's about to unleash it in Nehemiah chapter 8. However, what if the Holy Spirit doesn't use the sword? Because the Holy Spirit's been grieved with disunity. He's been quenched. What's going to happen then? Well, Ezra can stand up and he can read the letter of the law. And what does the letter of the law do? Well, the letter kills. It just condemns. So then the next obvious question would be, what grieves and what quenches the Holy Spirit of God? And we know what the answer is. The answer is sin. And first and foremost, the sin that quenches the Holy Spirit, as presented in the Bible, is the sin of unbelief. If you approach the Bible and the Word of God, you come on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, Sunday school, and you're skeptical and you don't know, it's disbelief or unbelief, that quenches. The second one, arguably, in the Bible is disunity. Go through the Bible and over and again you will find that unity, the unity of God's people, or in your Bible club, or your Sunday school class, or your family, that invites the Holy Spirit and His power. I always think of this psalm. I'm going to read it to you, Psalm 133. You know it. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And there's an exclamation point there. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, the high priest, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord, there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. If the word of God is going to have power and life, then the Holy Spirit, that oil, the unity, behold how pleasant, is like the oil, is a representation of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God must be the power behind this book. But pastor, God's word never returns void. Well, of course. Whether Ezra's audience is unified or not, the law they heard is still the truth. In that sense, it doesn't. But don't misquote that verse to assume and support that some dry reading, empty without the power, the anointing of God, has any true effect. This is the sword of the Spirit, and the Spirit gives life, and the Spirit loves unity. You know, I've noticed this through the years. Show me a believer, a Christian, a church member who's a sower of discord and a divider of the brethren. I will show you someone who is bored with the Word of God. Just bored with Scripture. Now, they can talk for six hours on a phone or text or whatever about their neighbor, but six minutes in the Scriptures just really gets dull. Unity of spirit. Hands united. That's the first thing. The second one you'll notice, number two, is the heart. Chapter 8, verse 2. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Apparently, Ezra set up a nursery. That's what it's saying. So that the men and the women, the young people, anyone, anyone who's old enough to understand was allowed to come. Children who could understand. Verse 3, and he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Let me stop here for a minute. How many believers do you know tonight who would come to church and hear Genesis, that's the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy being, being read out loud from the morning, early morning, until midday? 
And as the Bible says here, stand up. I should have had, tonight would have been fun, right? We just, the whole message for 30 minutes, we stand. And think about doing it for three hours. How can they do that, preacher? Part of it is what it says right there in verse 3. A lot of it is. It says, look at it. The ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. You know, I know something tonight. I know that there's probably five or ten people in this room right now that are, that are not attentive. They're not. They're somewhere else. Now, they're probably attentive right now because I just called them out. They don't know who they are. <laughs> the ones not laughing are not attentive. They're not attentive. What are they going to get? These people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the word. They came to hear the word. Because if you think about it for a moment, they didn't have a Bible like you have. Ezra had one of the few copies of the law itself, and so the people rightly considered it precious. I wonder if we do. Look at verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, like a stage, a platform, which they had made for the purpose. Kind of like we had our drive-in, that wooden platform, that was a pulpit of wood. Now look at what it says, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, all these guys. I won't read them all because I can't. Zechariah is second to last. I know him. All these men were there for a purpose. You're going to see that in a moment. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, above them physically. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen. Amen. With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Wow, picture this for a moment. These Jews are getting down on all fours with their faces to the ground. They're standing and they get down. And sometimes they stand and they lift their hands and they say, Amen. Wouldn't hurt you guys to say once in a while, say, Amen. Amen. Yeah, thanks for that. But all of this was an action of the response of just reading from the law of God. And they did it from morning to midday. But why? What were they hearing? Was it some, some exciting? Did they have a laser light show and smoke coming out and chariots of fire was playing? Because we got to make the Bible exciting. Was it funny? I tell you what they were listening to. I'm going to give you one tiny sample out of the law. And I literally just kind of picked this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and saying unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the person shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. And thy estimation shall be of the male for twenty years, and even unto sixty years old. Even thy estimation shall be fifty shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. And if it be a female, then thy estimation shall be thirty shekels. And if it be from five years old, even unto twenty years old, then thy estimation shall be of the male twenty shekels, and for the female ten shekels. And if it be from a month old, you get the point right. My point is this, why do the people respond enthusiastically to that? And how could they listen for so long? Brother Coffey used to tell me that in Africa, he said, Brother Blalock, you come to Africa, you preach four hours, they will want more. That's why I never went, amen? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here's the reason why, and I asked Brother Coffey, he said the same thing. Thirsty, the heart. Their heart was in this. 
They believed it was God's word. They thirsted for God's word. They were thankful for God's word. So you know what? Before you start reading the Bible, I think this would be a wonderful prayer. I think it might even change if you're watching where you are now. Your Bible study time or devotional time, always pray. But maybe pray with David who said in Psalm 119, 18, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Wondrous. That's this book. If you go to it with wondrous things out of thy law, there's the heart. And beloved, it is a heart of expectancy, a heart of openness and faith. This is the beginning of having the Word of God change your life. But the hands and the heart alone are not enough. There's a third thing, and it's the head or the mind. Look at verse 8, if you would. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's the head as, law, as well as the heart and the hands. About 20 years ago, a couple of little preacher boys, I think Charlie might have been one. It was 15 years, I don't know. They came to my office and said, hey, could you show us, teach us about expository teaching and preaching? And I immediately went to this verse and I said, this is basically it. It says, they read in the book distinctly so that people could understand. That's important. That's why this is important. Distinctly. And then it says they gave the sense. It's an explanation. Here's what the verse means. And then caused them to understand the reading. What was it that Jesus said when he quoted Deuteronomy He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy strength and all thy soul and all thy mind. The mind? Yes. You see, beloved, I remind you that the men who are standing, the names that I didn't want to read all of them because I tried earlier this week and I I just butchered it again. Those men were there for a reason. There in verse 4 and verse 7, those men were there to, once it was read, in the groups over here and the groups over here and the groups that, that couldn't hear, all of it to explain exactly what the Scripture meant. They gave the sense. That's interpretation and explanation. In the New Testament, we call this, it's referred to as doctrine, Bible doctrine. Not philosophies, not good ideas. I just heard a sermon the other day from a guy out in California, and I listened to the whole thing, and I did it, and you know, you can go two times speed. So I did that because it was kind of hard to listen to. But I could listen to enough of it to know that everything he said was just opinions and philosophies. And it was good in the sense that he was entertaining, walked up and down. It was really good. But I remember thinking to myself, there's not one thing that he said that would change anybody's life. Because it's just his opinion. That's why doctrine is vital. Not your thoughts or earthly wisdom. This is the eternal, this is the infallible, inerrant, transforming preserved word of the living God and if you want to have real revival in your heart or and if you want to continue a transformation that the word of God will do in your heart then you know you've got to know not just the words of the Bible but what the words actually mean what did they mean in Leviticus 27 to these Israelites? It meant a lot. Those words I read about, you know, what they, the, the, the different um, law that God gave to the people, yet those words meant something to them. 
That was the purpose of reading. And then that was the need for exposition. The Bible means precious little until you read it distinctly, get the sense, and understand the reading. It's not some magic thing that if I just, you know, have words playing or listen to words, and that's still not enough to bring this revival or full blessing or full transformation in your own heart. Now, to be sure, if you want the Word of God and you hear the Word of God and you're starting to understand the Word of God, then you've gone a lot further than most Christians do, and it's full of possibility. But it's really not the full. It's not enough. Because the final and most important part now are the feet walking the truth. And I love what happens here. Look at verse 13, would you? And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of the people, the priests and the Levites and the Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They want to know what it says. What does God want us to do? And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, the feast of tabernacles. So they read this. They're like, wait, what? We didn't do this in Babylon. What does God want us to do? Verse 15, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees and make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts in the courts of the house of God, in the street of the water gate, in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again in the captivity made booze, and they sat under the booze. In other words, what happened? They heard the word, they finally understood the word, and now they're obeying the word. That's, that's true Christianity. The happiest, most victorious believers you know are those believers who come to church, they open their Bibles, they want And they expect God to speak to their hearts. And then they seek to do whatever it is they hear. They want to do it. Folks, if the Bible is a sword, and it is, the sword of the Spirit, then it is a weapon that you're supposed to wield. It's not meant simply to be carried, a decorative sword. We preached on that years ago. It's not simply to be carried around. And just scrutinized and just dissected without a purpose. You picture a gun show. People gather around the gun. People gather around the gun every Thursday night. We had a Thursday night Bible study when I was uh, 12, 13, 14. The men did, and I asked if I could come. So they gather around the gun, and they admire the gun. And they take apart the gun and put it back together, and they, they even argue about the gun. Let's... Let's gather around the gun. 15 minutes a day with the gun. I'm going to go to gun seminary. Know more about the gun than anybody that's ever held a gun. What God wants is for us to know the gun. To memorize the gun. To teach the gun. To examine the gun. So that when the Holy Spirit leads, boom, you shoot that gun. Amen? You use it. Having said that, how is it that we actually go about doing that how do you walk it how do the feet get involved how do you apply not just learn the word of god because you know what the bible teaches that if you if you don't apply the scripture you know this verse james chapter 3 i'll put it on the screen for you 
I think. All right? Verse 23, if any be a hearer of the word, not a doer. He's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. That means a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. What good is the mirror? It's like a man or a woman. I remember it was real windy, super windy one day. We were uh, walking through the little front part of Publix, and you could see yourself in the, uh, in the glass. And there was a woman there, and her hair, the Adams family, I mean, she didn't know it. Until it was sticking way up because too much hairspray, but the wind blew it up. It was, it was funny looking. It was Bozo the Clown, I'm going to be honest with you. It really was. But she's walking by, and she sees herself, and she screamed, and the first thing she did was run to the bathroom. Why? She wasn't going to walk around like that. You got something on your face right here. You look in the mirror. You go, eh. no, I hope not. Verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. He being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. In other words, if you apply the scriptures, you're blessed in what you do. If you don't apply it, James says you're deceived in what you do. 2 Timothy, turn there, would you? 2 Timothy chapter 3. And everybody knows these scriptures in 2 Timothy, but I want us to see them again. Second Timothy 3, and there's a reason I want you to see this. Verse 14 says, Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Isn't that good for, he mentioned uh, for the very, the children's ministries. From a child. Timothy, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Yes, we teach these children. Yes, we want them to know the Word of God. Yes, we believe they can know and believe the doctrines of the Word of God. From a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, which are make, able to make thee wise unto salvation. It's a crying shame. We have people in our church sometimes, and not in this room, but through the years, Sunday morning folk, and they come to me and their kids are teenagers and say, Pastor, my teenage daughter's not saved. My teenage son's not saved. And I want to say to them, you didn't, you didn't have devotions. You didn't bring them to Sunday school. You didn't bring them Sunday night. You didn't bring them Wednesday night. You brought them late on Sunday morning. They fell asleep because they were up late Saturday night. And the Bible says here, from a, the Holy Scripture from a child, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. That's how you get your kids saved. Get them in the Word early. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now here it is. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, what's right, for reproof, what's not right, for correction, how to get right, for instruction, how to stay right, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. Now, folks, look at me. Here it says that the Bible is profitable. Scripture is applicable, if you will, in those four different areas. Doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction. The point I want us to see for a moment is that all Scripture, it says, all of it is profitable. Old Testament, yes. Andy Stanley a few years ago said that we need to be unhitched from the Old Testament. It's not for us today. That's why he's in a mess today. 
Old Testament, yes. New Testament, yes. The stories, the narratives, yes. The instructions even to Israel, yes. We've preached on them dozens if not hundreds of times. All Scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. And you know, the fact that all Scripture is inspired, and we believe here preserved, it doesn't mean that every single Scripture, every verse in the Bible, or I should say every statement, is true. The preacher, you just said that all Scripture is given by inspiration. It is. You just said that the Bible is infallible. It is inerrant. It is. But that doesn't mean that every statement that's written in the Bible is true. In Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel stood up, remember? The apostles are on trial. And Gamaliel said, let them go. Because if this be of God, it will continue. And if it be of man, it will stop. I've heard preachers preach on that, say, we know, we'll try this, and we know if it's of God, it'll go. If it's of man, it'll stop. But Gamaliel's words are not absolutely true. Of course they're not. Is it true that a false teaching cult will come to naught soon because it's not of God? That's what Gamaliel was saying. We'll see these people fail. Is it true, as Gamaliel said, of Theodos, that false teaching is quickly proven wrong by being destroyed? It wasn't true of Islam. It wasn't true of Mormonism. Every statement in the Bible... You know, Ecclesiastes is a great example. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, The dead know not anything. Is that true? That's not true. Then why is it in the Bible? It's in the Bible because Ecclesiastes is an inspired account of what Solomon reasoned under the sun, or that is, without, what life is without God. The vanity of man's opinions. You know, in Job, there are statements, and I've been very careful through these years about the book of Job. Because, you know, you have Eliphaz and Shofar, and they're giving these really witty sayings. And they sound good. And I've heard many guys preach on them, like, ah, preach on them strong. And I'm like, you do realize that what they're saying was wrong, and God rebukes them for what they're saying. In that sense, not every statement is true. But everything in the Bible is inspired, is preserved. So you have to, as it says in Ezra, read it, get the sense, understand it. While all the Bible is profitable, here's a second thing, not all of the Bible is personally, make sure you get this right, or I say it right, or directly applicable. See, what do you mean? You ever hear the song, every promise in the book is true? You know that one? Every promise in the Bible is true, or is mine, that's what it is. Every, every promise in the Bible is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. Right, we used to sing that when I was a kid. Now, do you believe that? I mean, then are you going to walk on water like Peter? Or you ladies who are as old as Sarah, Abraham's wife, are you going to start decorating the nursery? Joyce? Every promise in the book is mine. (laughs) God commanded Abraham to take his son up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And if every command is mine and directly personally applicable, then all the fathers with their favorite son should hop on the next plane to Israel and go to Mount Moriah, I suppose, because that would be obedience. 
Again, rightly dividing the word of truth. Every scripture that is profitable is not necessarily directly applicable. It, it's always worrisome to me when someone says, I didn't know whether I should move or not, and I found the scripture that says, and he moved to whatever, and this town I'm going to is the same town in the Bible. That's not really a good way to use the Bible. That's kind of rolling the dice. The story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah is profitable. It teaches me that it's right to believe God no matter what the circumstances. It teaches me that I should surrender my all to him and trust him. It teaches that God gave his all for man because Isaac's a type of Christ. It teaches me so much. So yes, it's profitable. You know, there's a famous saying in Bible study that says interpretation is one. Application may be many. There's only one correct interpretation to whatever God is giving us. But you know, and this is vital, if you ever are going to get the right application, you have to get, or should get, the right interpretation. What Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, if you look at that without first properly interpreting Ecclesiastes, you're going to believe the wrong thing. So be faithful to the Word of God. You know, it's like a little fork in the road. If you get a little bit off here, it's fine right now, but the wrong direction, the farther you go, a few years down the road, you're going to believe anything and everything willy-nilly. Be honest with the Scriptures. All Scripture is profitable. Not every statement in the Bible is stated as true. Not all Scripture is personally directly applicable as such. And then, I want you to remember this. This is important, too. There's a big difference between illumination and inspiration. What's the difference, Pastor? The Holy Spirit wants to illuminate the Scriptures for you. Only the Bible, only the words of God that you have in your hand right now are God-breathed. Only the Bible is inspired of God. Christians who claim to be inspired of God are dangerous. They're to be avoided. Benny Hinn was inspired R.A. Torrey was illuminated. Jim Jones was inspired. He got words directly from God. D.L. Moody was illuminated. The Holy Spirit illuminates the word. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, the Bible says. But the truth is finished. It's right here. It's God's word. There are no more divinely inspired words of God for any of us to receive from anywhere else other than this wonderful book, the word of God. And you know, if Ezra and Nehemiah and the returning exiles could have revival and joy, read the rest of the chapter in chapter 9, the joy they had, the joy of the Lord is your strength, he says, God says. If they could have worship with just the law, the law, how much more you and I who have the whole counsel of God. I have a New Testament, I knew where it was in my drawer, and I just grabbed it before I came here. Because I thought about someone. This is 45 years old, this pocket testament. I've had it. It says Brother Jim Blalock on the front. Had it since I was 18 years old. And in the back, there's some names and some dates. And one of them says this, Bob York, 9-18-76. September 18, 1976. Baptized, 10 When I was 19... I met Mr. York. 
He was in his 80s. He was a veteran of the First World War. And it was on a Saturday in Chicago. I'm a freshman, and we were out visiting as we did every single Saturday all day long. It had been a long, fruitless day. We were going door to door. We were just dropped off. You know, the freshmen especially, we didn't have cars. Drop off in Chicago in the morning. We'll see you at 10 o'clock tonight at Kedzie and Fullerton. That's how it went, week after week. And we were totally spent after about nine hours of this or more. And I looked at Gary, who was from Arkansas, and I said, let's do one more house. Just one more. We were done. So we went to this sort of brownstone-type building, you know, the tall um, apartments they have in these big cities. And, and you can only get through the front door. You can, you can open the front door, get in, and then you're in like a little lobby. And then they have all these buzzers. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've been in the cities? Yeah, you know. So you, you ring a bell, and it has the name underneath each bell. And if they want to find out who you are, they'll answer on the intercom. You ring the bell, ding. And then if they want to talk to you, they'll say, who is it? And then you'll tell them who you are, and then they may or may not. 99.99% of the time, it was not. They would either not answer, or they'd say, who is it? Um, Hi, we're visiting from First Baptist Church. We Get out of here! You know, so that's usually what you got. And so here it is. On the very last, we, we just went down. And on the last one, the very last one, we rang the bell. And the intercom said, who is it? And I said, hi, my name's Jim, and we're out visiting from First Baptist Church, and we'd like to talk to you without maybe riding our bus. The buzzer went off. Scared us. We freaked out because it was so rare. So, hey, let's go. We opened the door, went up about six flights. And there was Mr. York standing in his doorway. And he said, it's about time you guys got to my house. I've been waiting for six months. Six months? I thought months? I thought that was weird. But we walked in, we sat down, and as soon as I walked in, I noticed on his coffee table was a Bible, and it was opened. And we sat down, and he said, he said you guys are from a church, right? I said, yes, sir. We're out on visitation. We're from a church in Indiana. And he says, well, I asked God to send you months ago. He said, last fall... I found the Bible my mother gave me when I went to war. She always prayed for me. She was worried about me and so forth, and she told me to read this book. And now I'm old, and I'm not sure if it's too late. And, of course, I'm about to shout. I'm a young preacher boy, right? I'm like, I'm holding on like this is so awesome. And I noticed that his Bible's open. It's open to John chapter 3. And I said, what are you reading? And he goes, well, I've been reading this place where my mother marked it. And she put a mark right there, and I'm reading, and I've been reading, and it sounds like I need to be born again. <laughs> it does sound like that, Mr. York. <laughs> so we sat down next to him, and we read it, and he said, I said, what do you think that means? He said, I think that means that Jesus is God, and he came, and he, he died for my sins, and he's telling this rich uh, religious guy he needs to be born again. If he needs to be born again, I need to be born again. He knew exactly what everything meant. And then we got to the part where he was like, I'm sure, how do I do it? What does it mean? How can a man be born? You know, I feel the same way. And, you know, I sat there and I took the scriptures and Gary and we, we went through the Bible in probably an hour and a half. And that man, by himself, 
for months and months, reading the Word of God, you could see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was telling truth and truth. And the moment we gave the sense and the understanding, he wept. You heard I read where he got baptized the next month. And here was what happened. Week after week, he was not well. He had a big hole in his head from the war that, you know, you could see. Week after week, we would go back every Saturday and spend an hour with him. And every Saturday, it seemed like, because a week, you know, was a, a time between seeing a fellow believer. And every week, he would read chapter after chapter, thirsty, and reading it. And we would go in there, and, we, and I would walk in and say, Gary, does he seem different to you? Yeah, he's different in a week. We go back in the next week. Does he seem, man, this guy's like, his apartment started getting cleaner. He started getting better and cleaner, more positive, cheerful. Then he started showing us the scriptures. We would, man, come on up. He said, I got to show you something. And he would teach us stuff. And I remember as a freshman in Bible college, thinking to myself then, thinking, you know what? I will not spend my life teaching and preaching philosophies and ideas and stuff, principles, just the word of God. It is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you are blessed to have it. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that somewhere in our lives, the word of God, which is quick and powerful, was given to us and we heard it and it pricked us and illuminated our hearts. And thank you, Father, that since then we have been blessed by the instruction and the reproof and the correction, the doctrine of this wonderful book. May all of us approach it, Lord, approach it with the heart and the hands and the head and the feet of these people experiencing revival, both at Pentecost and here in Nehemiah. Thank you for your word. We love you tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.